Hey, thank you, Kevin. Well, welcome to part seven of eight of the series called Good News. I have a leading question for you, and that is, how many of you have ever been a part of a good old playground fight in elementary school? <laughs> Isn't that great? Yep, don't laugh too loud. <laughs> All right. Um, how many of you have, uh, have witnessed that? Yeah, all right. So here's the deal. Here's what you know about playground fights, that um, we don't often know why they start, but they certainly do make playtime interesting, don't they? They make recess rather interesting. Uh, and what generally happens around a playground fight is, pick it, Johnny and Billy get in a fight, a tussle about something, usually related to the slide or the swing or who said what to who or whatever. So Johnny and Billy kind of get in a little tussle. If there's a moment before an adult intervenes, what always happens is a crowd gathers around the little moment because, ooh, this is much more interesting than swinging, sliding, or playing kickball. Johnny and Billy are going at it. And so around Johnny and Billy gather a crowd of people. And then shortly thereafter, any um, recess aide who is like a gift from God, if you're a recess aide, like no one likes to do that, so we're grateful for you. But you come around and you decide, I'm gonna, I need to break this up. And as soon as the recess aide shows up, then the crowd disperses, right? Because they don't want to get in trouble too. And then Johnny and Billy are like in the mid-fight, but the crowd disperses right away, right? That, that about fair? I want you to think for a minute, what would happen if Johnny and Billy ended up um, being on the same basketball team and a fight breaks out on the court where Johnny and Billy fought that afternoon at recess, but that evening, let's say they didn't get suspended yet for the day and they got to play in a basketball game and, and Johnny's the point guard and Billy is the, whatever, power forward. And, and Johnny gets clocked by the opposing team's point guard. And then they start going at it. Well, who comes around to support him? Not just Billy, but every other teammate. And then when an authority figure shows up and there's a crowd gathered around this fight on the basketball court, all of a sudden no one is quick to disperse. Why not? The reason is there's more buy-in. There's belief. There's camaraderie. There's a unity. There's a belief that we together are doing something. And if one of us goes down, we are all here with him. If you knock down our point guard, we're going to back him up. Even if we all get in trouble, I don't care. We've seen this phenomenon over and over again. It happens in your businesses. It happens in your families. You get to see loyalty and unity evidenced whenever there's a crisis. Whenever there's a fight like that, you get to see on the playground especially, you get to see there is no loyalty to Johnny and Billy. You guys can get in trouble. I'm out of here. Here comes the teacher. But it's very different. When you're on a team, when you're together in a business or an organization, if you have buy-in and if you have belief that together we must defend one another, we are in, the loyalty is completely, completely different. And here's one of the things I've learned over time, and I think you know this too, is that leaders, leaders can create stuff. Leaders can create stuff all the time. They can begin momentum. They can start things. They can initiate new ideas or projects. They can get momentum going. Leaders can do that. They can kind of create the tussle in the playground. A lot of times the Johnny and Billy's are the leaders. They just are expressing their, their energy in the wrong way. But leaders can get things started. But what happens to things that get started is they inevitably run into hard times. They inevitably run into crisis. And then the question becomes, will what that leader has started be able to get through the inevitable crisis that comes? And the only way that it will be able to navigate the hard waters is if the people who are gathered around can sustain the work. So let me put it this way. Leaders can set the ship a sail, but the success of the journey is determined by how those on board react to the inevitable storms at sea. 
A leader can do that. A leader can set, set the careful how I say here can set the ship a sail. A leader can build the ship, put it in the water, cast it out, and say, "Everybody, get on board. This is where we're going." But you know, and I know that anything that begins, whether it's a new business, whether it's a new um, hobby, whether it's a, a sports team doing something, that no matter what it is, if you're trying to conquer something or go further than you are right now, you are going to run into trouble and difficulty. But the leader can get it going. The only way that success will be realized is if those who are on board will be able to carry on the leader's vision and mission when there is the inevitable crisis or storm at sea. Some of you have seen this um, on your sports teams at school where the coach is like, you know what, if you guys really want to make the playoffs next season, if you really want to be state champs, you need to set up, you need to set up on your own, you need to set up your own workout routine. This summer, if you stay committed to working out, then I'm telling you, you can go places. And so one or two of you decide on the team, you know what, shoot, we're going to do this thing. Like, man, I'm going to line it up. We're going to work out Tuesday mornings from 6 to 7.30, and then we're going to do Thursday evenings from 7 to 8. We're in, and then there's gusto behind it, there's momentum behind it, and then it doesn't take long into the summertime, like the first week, where half the team is like, shoot, that's too hard. Seriously, 6 in the morning, like, I don't think I can do that. But like, we were all in until the storms came, and it's like the alarm thing went off, and I'm too tired, that's a little too rocky, and I'm not sure I'm really, really in. If you've been a leader and you've tried to create momentum and buy-in, you have seen this happen over and over and over again. In the series that we're calling Good News, we're at the point where I've tried to make the case that the church is God's delivery method for the good news to all people at all time to come to know Jesus. That the good news of, of, of God through Christ should feel like great news to anybody who runs into a Christian that a Christian business, a Christian school, a Christian in our community, people should be like, shoot, that's awesome. That's also great that I have a classmate who's a Christian because they, they mean good things. They bring grace, loyalty, friendship, integrity. I mean, and they're incredibly uh, forgiving. Like, I love having Christians around. They're innovative. They don't have fear. Like, they're willing to risk things because they have a faith. I mean, it's amazing what they can do as leaders, as, as supporters, as friends, as loyal uh, you know, community members. It's great. But here's a deal I want to push to today. That there is, uh, there's always a crowd gathered around a movement. But the, the success of the movement is ultimately determined by how well those in the crowd can weather the storms that come by, lack of a better term, how much buy-in the individuals who make up the crowd have in the movement of, in our case, the good news. So today and next week, I want to speak particularly to what is the role if you call yourself a Christian, if you're listening online later to this recording, or if you're here sitting here this morning, if you are sitting here saying, you know what, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Like, if you would ask me, yeah, I'd, I'd raise my hand. Sign on. Where do you want me to sign? Like, I'm a Christian. If you say you're a Christian, I want to address with you this morning, what does that then mean? If I'm a Christian, if I'm in, if I'm around the circle, and Jesus has started a movement, and it's called the church, if I'm in, and I'm in the circle, like I'm in, what does that then mean? Today I want to challenge and encourage you. I want to give you an idea and an ideal to reflect on. And then next week I want to answer the question of what do I do with what I heard. Today I just want to raise an issue. I just want to look at our hearts for a minute. Next week I want to try to answer the how to, how am I going to do the things that maybe I should, could and should be doing. So in order to get to that, I want to take you to a passage of scripture that gives a great window into the early development of the church, and that is in the fifth book of what we call the New Testament in our Bibles, 
The book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, is where I'd love to have you turn. If you have a Bible with you, that's great. If you don't, no problem at all. We have Bibles in the pew around you. They're our gift to you. If you don't own one, we'd love to have you take one with you. But Acts is the, the fifth book. It's kind of the second part of the Gospel of Luke. So Luke was someone who followed Jesus, and his goal was to write an orderly account so that people following behind him would know, hey, if you want to know how it went down with Jesus, let me just write it down for you. This is how it went down. So if you're a skeptic, if you're a critic, if you're not sure all this is true, you've got a friend in Luke. He wanted to make sure that you knew this is how it goes down. So Luke wrote part one of the Gospel of Luke, and part two is Acts. So Acts chapter 8, and kind of setting the context for this, we're in a spot where um, Stephen, a good, good man, for the first time, just imagine this now, this is going to be hard to imagine, but before you read too far in Acts 8, in the end of Acts chapter 7, for the first time in Christian history, because there really was no Christian history truly until, until Acts, but for the first time there's someone who's just been martyred, who's been killed for their faith. This is really disturbing. Uh, if you can imagine this happening, you're an early Christian, you're coming to follow Jesus and he's been raised from the dead, and, and now you're beginning to wonder, what does this new world look like? The answer is the new world looks like this. People who stand up and say, I'm a Jesus follower and can defend it, they get stoned to death. Oh, that's how that's going to play out. This will be the first of what will be many so the tide of cultural opinion and popular opinion is not in our favor and not in your favor. And this is a brand new world that we're in. And so Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, there's this guy named Saul who was there. And Saul was there, we read there, giving approval to his death. And then what happened is on that day, the day of Stephen's stoning, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. Pause it there for a minute. This is the reality of what happens after someone has been stoned. It invigorates, it moves, it catalyzes people who have wanted to persecute but didn't have the license to or didn't feel welcome to in culture to actually do that. But when something so violent, bloody, and gory, and rash as a quick public stoning happens, all of a sudden it opens the floodgates to be like, oh man, we can do that? <laughs> then let's go. I've been wanting to do this. And so it opens up this piece. And so you have to ask, if you are thinking, if you are thinking about becoming a Christian, do you want to join a movement that is not, it's not like it's not winning, it's actively losing. This is not a good moment in the church. In fact, in this moment in the church, they don't know the future. Like, they don't know that thousands of years from this time that we would be sitting here talking about a story, that this story would be held and passed on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, now thousands of years. They had no idea about this. All that they know is that, man, our leader just got stoned, and now, man, we are targets of what is next. So, look what happens next. A great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and then, look at this little phrase, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Go back to my illustration of the, the playground fight at recess for a minute. Imagine the, the epicenter and then the people around Billy and Johnny who are fighting. What this is saying is that everyone on the outside of the circle, all those who were kind of in but we're not sure if they're really in, all those people who maybe were still deciding if we're really bought in but we're around it at least, those people scattered. 
The only people who are remaining are at the epicenter, Billy and Johnny, the people who are creating the movement and the catalyzing the movement, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And so the, the reality is, if you want to get rid of a movement, get rid of its early followers. We don't even have to get rid of its leaders yet, but you can completely disrupt it by getting rid of the people who are immediately coming around that circle, and then there's no power to it anymore. It's gone. That's the low-hanging fruit. The people who are still deciding, do I really want to be in or not? Those people, gone, scattered. And you're left to wonder, like, what are they thinking? What's in their minds? They just witnessed Stephen dying, and now they're seeing this persecution. They're scattering. It's kind of like the, the teacher has come, the authority has come in their world, the authority has come and delivered justice. And so they run. Like, I, I remember I went to school in Barbados, uh, which is not a bad thing to do in your life. You should try it sometime. Um, and uh, we had in our school uh, people who were, uh, we called them prefects, which is great. Um, they were 18-year-olds. Uh, I was 11, 12, and 13 years old when I went to this school. And in this school, the 18-year-olds, basically 17, 18-year-olds, they had the power to give out detentions um, to people who they generally didn't like and who might have been violating a rule a little bit. And I remember one time at, at lunch, I was a kid, 11, 12-year-old, and everyone wore, wore uniforms and all that. And someone decided, you know what, hey, why don't we play soccer? We call it football. Why don't we play football in a part of the um, campus that we're not allowed to play in because it's the only like dry and open spot. So we're like, oh, that's kind of cool. So people were playing soccer. And then here comes two prefects over, and you can tell like they wear different uniforms and they kind of just are angry. You know, just, so they, they come over, and we all are like, oh no, like we're in trouble. So a couple kids, and our probably 20 of us playing soccer, uh, a couple kids run, and the prefects yell at them. Like, I mean, it was like the devil itself was invested in these people, like just, Rawr! so they just kind of put the fear of God. So everyone just kind of like froze right there. So I'm like, slowly backing away, just kind of backing away outside the circle, just take a couple steps back slowly, slowly backing away, trying to blend in as the only white kid in the school, just backing out, <laughs> backing out. And, uh, and I just backed out, and I backed out of the problem, and then I stood behind the hedgerow, and then I ran, you know? Because when the authority comes, it's like, no, like now judgment is coming, and I don't want the judgment, I don't want detention, so I ran. Like that's what people do when the, when the judge comes, and you know they have the authority to do something to you, like unless you're truly bought in, you're out. And that's what I was like. I'm not in that much. I mean, we played soccer, but I'm not going to detention with you guys. I mean, good luck with that. I'm out. And so you wonder what's going through the minds of these people who are out. Like they've been scattered. You can be in, you can be out. We can see here in second. Verse two. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. It's systematic, systemic persecution and suffering. This is a hard world for us to imagine, but it's in this world that the church was born. And so what do those people do who are scattered? What do the individuals do? What do the people, not the church as a whole, not the movement as a whole, not the group of people, but the actual people, the individuals, you, me, individually, what do people do in that moment? Verse 4 tells us of chapter 8. Those... Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Those who had been scattered preached the word. That preached the word is one word 
we use, they turn the, uh, this thing into a verb. It, you may have heard the word evangelize or evangelization. This is that verb, kind of put it in this way, that they gospelize, they evangelize, they preach the word wherever they went. This is kind of stunning. That the individuals who first made up the character of the church, the individuals who were scattered from that little playground fight, from the little thing, from that little moment, from that little space, when the persecution came, what they did was totally different than what I did when I was in school. Yeah, they scattered. But they didn't run and hide. They took the opportunity wherever they went to preach the gospel, to preach the word, to start again, to show people Jesus died for me. And he died for you and he came to life again. They taught the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That was amazing to them. It was stunning. It was life-changing. It gave them the kind of courage that essentially asked the question, who cares? Who cares if I die for this? Because the power of death is broken. I mean, who cares about the fear of man anymore? Because the power of that fear is gone. I have no reason to be afraid anymore. It's amazing what the individuals, what the people, the individuals who started the church actually did in the moment of crisis. Believe it or not, believe it or not, Saul turned out to be a Paul, this guy who was a persecutor of the church. And um, as the years went on, Saul turned from persecuting the church to actually having a moment where he met God through a vision. And he, his life turned 180 degrees. And what we see Paul doing as he moves from being a persecutor and a, a killer and prisoner of early Christians, he becomes the greatest missionary, greatest Christian missionary that we know of. It's a stunning turn of events. And we see Paul later writing to, church, to churches. He wrote in Romans, he wrote in Colossians, he wrote in 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to put them up on the screen in a minute. And what he was writing to is he's writing to individuals, he's writing to people. He's writing to people who made up this brand new thing called the ecclesia. The ecclesia is a Greek term. It meant assembly or gathering. There wasn't a church like this. They were just gatherings of people. They were just people who got together, who ecclesia, who gathered, assembled together for a particular reason. And he wrote to those individuals because they're scattered all over because the persecution was happening. And he wrote to all of them individual things. And one of the things that I, I think I, is true, and I wanted to say it this way, that, that, that the good news, the good news requires more than individual effort, but certainly not less. That the movement of the early church isn't just because a, a group moved or a, an organization moved. It was because the individuals moved. That individuals and personal responsibility, me as a Christian owning it, you if you call yourself a Christian owning it, the personal responsibility, that's what moved the good news throughout our world. That the good news requires, requires more than individual effort. This is a community and a group deal. We're in this together. But it doesn't require less. There's no such thing as a group that does things if the individual in that group doesn't do the same things as well. So it doesn't require less. So Paul, later on, Paul wrote a couple things. I just wanted to highlight a couple things because I love how he talks individually to people and encourages them because there's all these groups now that are gathered, these ecclesias, these gatherings gathered around. What are they supposed to do? How are they supposed to keep meeting? What do they do? And here's what he wrote to them in Romans 15, verse 14. He said, I myself am convinced, I am, I'm sold on this idea, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves, like you are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. What's he saying? He's saying, church in Rome, 
And this, this, I believe, is coming from this belief of what we call, we call this the priesthood of believers. It's a big idea. But the idea is that, that all believers in Jesus Christ have all that they need for life and godliness. You don't need to have an apostle show up in Rome to lead the church. I mean, that's what he's saying here, that you yourselves, my brothers, you and your little gatherings and your little assemblies, when you were scattered from Jerusalem and you landed there and you were afraid, but you still preached the gospel anyway, you yourself, don't wait for me to show up. Don't wait for the apostle to show up. You yourselves, you're full of goodness. You're filled with knowledge. You are. You are competent to instruct one another. Do not doubt it. You can do this. That's what he's saying to this early, these early gatherings. He kind of says similar things in Colossians 3.16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, the truth of the gospel of Jesus that he came, died for you by grace through faith. Let that dwell among you richly as you, the expectation is that you will teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitudes in your heart, that there will be this life to your community, this joy to your community, but that there will be a a teaching, an admonition that you, believers, individually, you get to do. You get to do this. Then he goes on in 1 Thessalonians, and here's what he wrote to the young church in, in Thessalonica. You became imitators of us, that is, I think, the apostles he's referring to there, and of the Lord. For, and here's how you did it, you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. You welcomed the message of the truth of Christ in the midst of severe suffering, because this is what you get when you embrace that, with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you, you church, you people in Thessalonica, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. That as a result of you individually responding in these ways, now the message has been known far and wide. And this is why I say that leaders can set the ship a sail, but the success of the journey is determined by how those on board react to the inevitable storms at sea. That those who are gathered around the movement, the early movement of Christianity, they were the ones who determined the success of this. Yes, God has done this through Christ and the Spirit strengthens. I do not want to diminish that in any way. Please hear me. But the individuals still had a decision to make when they fled, when they left Jerusalem. How in the world are they going to react? What personal responsibility are they going to take? And the, the movement of the church was built on people, individuals, saying, you know what, this is mine. I own this. This is, this is me. And here's why I think that's important. A couple things quick. I think you know this is true for you. If you're ever looking to buy a product, if you're ever looking to buy a new car or uh, replace an appliance or go on a date somewhere and you need a good restaurant recommendation, whatever it might be, that we trust individuals more than organizations, right? Like if, if you see a commercial on TV about a new Mazda or a new Nissan, new Chevy, Ford, whatever, okay. But if one of your friends is like, dude, I just bought a new F-150 and here's what's up with it, here's good, bad, like, oh, like, he bought it. Oh, she bought it. Like, I'm in. Like, I trust individuals more than I trust organizations. It's just the way we all work. Secondly, this is also true that we see passion in individuals um, more than organizations and earlier and easier than organizations. The life, the hope, the joy, not an organization thing, but an individual thing. So people, individuals who are responding to the hope of Christ, we see passion in people. And thirdly, this, personal sacrifices are more compelling in individuals than, than um, in organizational uh, sacrifices. So the, the sacrifice that someone makes 
to move their family, to take a less paying job, whatever it might be, that personal sacrifice, we realize, oh man, they're really into something. Like, yeah, I know the company had to cut back and the company lost whatever, but no, seriously, some individual had to. So when someone says, now this is me, I'm going to cut back, I'm going to lose, I'm going to give up, it's like, well, why? What's your compelling reason? Because individual personal responsibility is more compelling than anything else. So here's a, here's a question. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm about to wrap this baby up, okay? So stay with me for this finish because I have two questions that I want to put out to you. The, this is not one of the two questions, so I have three then, I guess, technically. My question was this. Like, why don't Christians everywhere always act this way? Like, just why not? Like, if, if, if cars drive, you get in and they drive, that's what they're supposed to do. Like, I just, I'm like, why don't Christians everywhere always act this way? Why don't Christians everywhere always be like, yeah, sure, I'm in. Like, yep, Jesus came, died for me. Like, I'm in, I'm in. I have that courage of the early church. Like, why don't Christians everywhere always act this way? Of course, then I said, well, why don't I always act this way? You know, then that didn't feel very comfortable, so then I kept deflecting uh, off of me personally and onto other people. But here's what I think is true. I'm just going to list a couple things. I think sometimes, I think sometimes this. Sometimes, sometimes we're afraid of others. Sometimes we're afraid of others. Sometimes, to be honest, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of how what I say will impact you and whether you can receive it or not. You're afraid sometimes, I think, of the people that you go to school with how they're going to react to you. I think you're afraid sometimes of your employees or your employers, how they're going to react. I think sometimes you're afraid of your family members. I think sometimes you're afraid of your community members. I think sometimes you're afraid even of people in the pew around you here, in the church around you here, if they actually knew the conviction and passion that was burning within you, they might think you're a little weird, a little freaky, a little going too far. Like, I think there are just times all of us have a fear of other people. I think sometimes we don't have a model. We just don't know how to do the things that maybe we should be doing. We haven't seen it modeled haven't seen a Christian businessman or businesswoman lead in this way, which goes with number three, that we lack vision sometimes. Like, I can't picture. This is different than a model, but this is vision. Is Like, sometimes, I don't know, why don't Christians always act this way? I just can't picture what it would be like. I just can't, I can't imagine what being a dad in this way would be like. I can't imagine being a mom and what that would be like. I can't imagine being a teenager and imagining what that would be like. Like, I can't picture it. I don't see what you mean. I don't understand that because I don't have that model. I, I just don't have the vision for it. I mean, I think that's a reality. I think sometimes this, that we lack confidence in ourselves. I think sometimes you look around, you're like, man, I can't do that. I can't do this. And certainly I can't do that. And everyone knows, so I'll just draw down. I think sometimes that's true. This fifth one, though, is what I really want to camp on for a minute, and I think this one is probably the most important to me that I just want to address, uh, and that is this. Sometimes I think we lack, um, we lack conviction. And this is where, um, if I'm honest, I feel a little more, like I just wish I could sit with each of you personally and just have a convo about this one. And I wish that for a moment all... Um, you know, we could just set everything aside. We could talk without bias, without anger, without any past bitterment, bitter, bitterness or resentment. Just, just talk. And set everything aside for a minute. And just ask a couple of really simple questions. They're so simple that they can be offensive. <laughs> and so that's why I, I you know, lead in this way. But they're so simple. They're not meant to be offensive, but I don't think that I want to back away from them because I don't want them to offend, but I do want them. I do want us, if you call yourself a Christian, I want you at least to have had a moment in your life where you can sit around these two questions and respond. And part of it is today, but part of it may be later for you, maybe this evening. And they're, they're incredibly simple. And again, they're so simple, they may be offensive. The first question is simply this. 
do I know Jesus? Do I actually know Jesus? And when I said it's simple, I mean it's simple. This is the very beginning. And I don't care how long you've been in church. I don't care if it's been 5, 10, 50, 70 years. I mean, come on, forget church attendance for a minute. I'm not asking how many years you've been in church. I'm not asking how much of the Bible you know. I'm not asking how much you pray. I'm not asking how many songs you listen to that don't have cuss words in them. I'm just asking you, do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Do you know and have you experienced the forgiveness that washes over your soul when you see the grace of God, that Jesus died in your place, that by grace, through faith, Jesus died for you, and he died for me. And that it has nothing to do with my works, it has nothing to do with what I do after that. It has everything to do with the incredible grace of God through Jesus Christ. Do you know, do you know, that Jesus? Or are you around the group that knows him? Are you around the people that know him? And you feel like you might know him because I'm around the people who know him. I'm in the circle. But if the teacher comes, I'm going to run. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. So I just want to ask you, and I want to give you the chance, not here in this moment, but I want, I want to invite you to ask it. Like, do I know him? Do I know him? And the second question is this. Do I want others to know him? Do I actually want others to know him? Do I want others to know him like I want to catch up on my Netflix binge? Like I want a vacation coming up. Like I, I want to feel productive at the end of my work day. I want my kids to stop doing this, and I want my kids to start doing this. I want to be accepted by my peers. I want to accomplish these goals. I want to start the business. I want to, and all the wants drive you, and they drive me, to make up our days. And Monday morning's going to start tomorrow for you, and your day and your week will begin in motion, and you're going to move after a lot of your wants. And I don't blame you for those. But I just want to ask, is one of these wants for you, I want people who don't know Jesus to know him? Does it show up in your parenting? Does it show up in your work? Does it show up in your heart? Just like I want to connect with my friends, I want to get better at, I want to build something, I want to create, I want to be productive, I want to relate and be known, like I want, do I know Jesus? And frankly, I need to ask, do I actually want others, do I want others to know him too? Because what I don't want for you I don't want you to get to the end of your days and say, you know what? What I've wanted is I've wanted to be in church. I've wanted to be around my family. The reason I go to church is because my kids do, my grandkids do, and if they stop going, I probably would too. That's what's in it for me. Because the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of the movement of the gospel, has a lot to do with individual effort, more than that, but certainly not less. I want to give you a chance. To have a moment where you say, you know what? Do I know him? Do I know him? And if I do, do I really want others to know him? Do I think about how my kids 
can help lead their friends to know Christ? Do I pray for the people that I interact with throughout the week? Do I look for opportunities to bring other people to know him? Next week, I want to talk about the how-tos. Next week, I want to talk practical. This is part two of this series. Today, I just want to stop in this space. I want to invite you to ask, do I know him? Do I know him? And do I want others to know Jesus? Don't be afraid of the silence of those moments. Don't be afraid to carve out that time. Don't be afraid to ask the question. Because I want for you a life, yes, that has passion and courage, but that is founded on the person of Jesus Christ and the hope and the life that he brings and the good news of the gospel. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us as people to have the courage that we need to ask these really simple questions. To find out if we're right in the center of this, if we're going to be people who, when we're scattered because of persecution, when we're scattered because we're afraid of our faith, and we're scattered because people look down on us, or I don't get the job, or I'm going to have to move, or people think ill of us, when we're scattered because of these reasons, that we'd be able to know, you know what? And I'm in. I'm in not because of the work it takes. I'm in not to impress anybody. I'm in not because I want a better reputation. But man, I'm in because of Jesus. I'm in because of what Jesus has done for me. I'm in because where else would I go? So I pray that you would give us the clarity of heart to distinguish where we might be performing and where we might need a heart to be tuned and turned to the incredible, ridiculous grace of God through Jesus. That like the early church, when scattered by the systemic persecution, would indeed be scattered, but in the scattering would evangelize, would gospelize, would share the good news individually where they went, because this is the makeup of the church. I pray that you give us the courage that we need to ask the questions and wait on you for some of the answers. We look forward to our time next week when we talk about how to do some of these things that we might want to do. We pray this in Jesus' name.